Get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good morning. Serve to receive, but to 
so good to see you. It is that time. So we just need to stretch. So if the person next to you falls asleep, actually, if the person in front of you falls asleep this morning, I want you to lick your finger and stick it in their ear. It used to, <laughs> it used to work in youth ministry, and we had the cleanest youth group's ears ever. And I don't, I don't know if that is a statement about my teaching or how late our events were, but it's good to see you. Yeah, you're going to do that. Some of you are already doing it. Now you have to clean your finger, just so you know. <laughs> If you'd grab your uh, worship guides and open them, I want to highlight a few things. Um, welcome to Carpenter's Way. Uh, if you're watching on the internet, we're glad that you are watching. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel 27 this morning, so make sure you grab a Bible and you can join us there. For those of you in this room, those of you who come here regularly, welcome home. For those of you who are visiting, we're awfully glad that you would uh, take this warm summer day and come join us this morning to worship the Lord. And uh, our hope and our prayer is that you fall in love with Jesus because he already loves you. Uh, and uh, we want to introduce you to him today and encourage your walk if, uh, if, you, if you already know him. So uh, thanks for being here. Uh, after the service, immediately following this, there are Bible studies that go on. Uh, and if you're not a part of that and you're visiting with us, I'm sure Julie and I would love to shake your hand. We'll be up here after, so make your way up here and, 
And uh, we'd love to introduce ourselves to you and get to know you a little bit and answer any questions you may have. Just a couple things that I want to highlight. Number one, TNT is July 12th. That is our seniors' ministry. Once a month they get together and they eat dinner uh, here. So information in there about that. It's the second Thursday of every month uh, at 545 here at the church. So take uh, some time to look at that. This week is our preschool camp uh, and our preschool, our preteen camp. And uh, we want you to be praying. Well, that would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? But all the parents would be going, I didn't know we had one of those. <laughs> Only the parents of kids, who, of parents who've had more than one kid. Your first kid would be like, no way. Second or third, it's like, come on. <laughs> but uh, that starts this week. So we want you to be praying for those kids and the staff that go. And, uh, and because of that, there will not be sun worshipers this week for those who've been involved with that. I am going to ask at this time our ushers to come forward as we prepare for our offering. Um, this is for those of us who attend here regularly. If uh, this is not your church home, we ask that you not give. We're glad you're here. We don't want you distracted with money. So uh, just thanks for being here and, and uh, grab your Bibles. We'll be in 1 Samuel 27 in a little bit and we're going to sing some more. Thanks again for being here this morning. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Father, we're thankful that we can gather each week uh, at least once, if not on a couple times, to get into your word, to talk to each other about our dad. Uh, Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you or watching online, I, pr I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would want to know our God. I pray for those who do know you, that they would be encouraged having been with us today. Father, draw us to yourself, the saved and the lost, so that we may desire to know you better and surrender our lives to you. Now, Lord, as we uh, commit the service to you, uh, we pray for our students this week, our children this week that will be going to camp. Uh, we pray that you'd keep them safe. We pray you would bless them. We pray for clear ministries as they'll be ministering to our kids, that you'll be with them and Alicia and her team as they take them. Father, we, uh, we think of our other ministries and our folks, lots of folks vacationing this week. We pray you'd be with them and bring them back to us safely. And uh, Lord, just uh, I pray that your words would endure this morning and uh, that we would not be a distraction from what you want to do in the hearts of your men and women. So we love you. Thank you for today. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.
sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory.
Like the scent of perfume Lifting you where you belong Oh, being thrown Being thrown like our God Who is like our God Love that knows no end. Who is like our God, the ever reigning King, is always faithful, friend. We will exalt you, our God, the King, over all the earth. We will sing, being through. With our worship to you, by the praise that you're due, oh, be in through. Let our worship reach you, like the scent of perfume, lifting you where you below. to you by the praise that you're due oh be in throne let our worship reach you like the sin of perfume lifting you where you belong oh be in throne be in throne with our worship to you by the praise that you're due oh be that I worship, reach you like the sail of perfume, lifting you where you belong. Oh, be in throne, be in
sometimes we sing or we sing those songs and <clears throat> as we're singing this morning I'm listening to you sing I'm realizing boy if we really believe that that should affect how we make decisions in our lives you know some sometimes we attribute you know God's reigning so we can trust him with DC or we can trust him with our health we can trust him with things we can't control but <clears throat> you know if we're going to declare these things then we have to trust him with the things we also think we can control we have to cast our our decisions our feelings onto him and trust that he can handle it and that's hard that's hard i mean you can't do that unless you absolutely really believe that so uh, let's pray this morning um julie i'm going to take you up on that i do need a cup of water because what i have to say this morning is super important and i want to make sure i get all both th through both hours of this message <clears throat> let's <laughs> you're my favorite i don't know who said that <laughs> Less spellings? You said that? You'll be bad-mouthing me in 15 minutes, dude. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, can, we pray? can we pray for ourselves this morning and each other? And Would you just bow your head just for a moment? <clears throat> I'm going to start with those of you who don't even know if God exists. and I want to challenge you this morning to tell God if he's there to speak to you in a way you can't deny. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. And uh, we're not trying to get you to join Carpenter's Way. We're trying to get you to join the family of God. We are begging you. Let's be clear. This isn't about expanding Christianity. It's about helping you know the king of the universe who sent his son to die for you. So I challenge you this morning just to dare God if he's there to talk to you. This morning's message is especially timely in a culture that worships feelings. So for those of us who are the children of God living in this culture that also worships feelings... I ask you this morning, if you are God's child, to tell him to help you think clearly, not with your heart, but with your head. And now, oh God, I pray for myself, that you would let me speak clearly, that I would only say the things that you once said, and the things that I add on my own, you would, you would help them forget. Father, I ask you in your power to change your people, including myself, make us what you saved us to become. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this week I had the privilege of teaching men's time out on Tuesday morning, and men, if you are not part of a Bible study, Tuesday morning from 6.30 to about 7.15, we get together and just open the Word, and Daryl Douglas usually leads it, and it's excellent, and I'm privileged to be a part of it, but I got to share with the guys this Tuesday morning, and I, as we were talking, we began to reflect on um, this, this book, The Bible. And I challenged them to think for themselves as to whether or not this book, the Bible, that we carry in such high esteem is less of a manual on a religion called Christianity or a moral handbook. And if it isn't more of a story about a benevolent, merciful, gracious, loving God who is chasing a rebellious people and begging us to, be, to let him be our daddy. I mean, this is a story. This, this, this isn't just a, a theological handbook. And, and we obviously want to know God and we want to understand doctrine. So we go to this book to, which tells us and teaches us what's true. But I think it's more of a love story. And the story isn't just about God, a perfect loving God. Thank you, sweetie. It isn't just about a perfect loving God, but it's also about, about how man who is a born fallen and fleshly whose desires are always away from God, even as his child. 
even as his child, even if you love God, the tendency to feed your flesh, even with religious, religious things, are so great. I think one of the most dangerous things we have in our culture today, in Western culture, is the marriage of feeling and truth. When you marry feelings and truth, you end up with feelings, just so you know. You evaluate everything based upon feelings. That's how we got political. Because we have feelings that are political, depending on how you were grown and where you grew up and what you believe is moral. That, that's, that's how you vote. And what we have done is we have, we have married feelings with what we think is truth, and we have attributed things to God that simply aren't in His, in his Word. And then we go to read, and, and we see stuff that we want to see, not what is there. And it's really, really important that we understand this so we can fight it. When we open the scriptures, it is not our goal, it shouldn't be our goal to validate preconceived ideas. It should be our goal to find out what we're wrong on, find out what is true. What does this book say about God? What does this book say about people? What does this book say about God's love for people? I've heard from so many of you <clears throat> who are enjoying our study that began in the Old Testament book of Ruth. <clears throat> we now find ourselves in 1 Samuel uh, this morning in chapter 27, and if you haven't turned there, you can. I'll be with you in a minute. Uh, and then we'll continue in the coming weeks. We'll wrap this up in the next few weeks. And then I, what I'm going to do is, is get, go right into 2 Samuel because we've got some great stories in there we need to go through. I think, I think one of the things that I'm hoping you're grasping is the progression of David's faith. It gets weaker over time. And we'll talk about that. So we're going to go into the second, uh, the second, actually there was one book originally. It's been divided in the English Bible into two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But we will move a little more quickly through there and by a little more quickly. Instead of 20 years, it's going to take us 10. And then, because I really, um, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of you is, is these stories may sound familiar, but you've never slowed, on, slowed up enough to see them within context. And I think that as we go into the New Testament, I'd like to do another gospel. I'm thinking about the gospel of John. And I'd like to do it in the same way we're doing this because I think you'll learn some things about Jesus that may upset some of you. Um, Jesus was not a Christian, just so you know. He was a Jew. He was a Jew, uh, born a Jew, to proclaim redemption for all mankind as a Jewish Messiah whose blood covers the sin of any man, woman, and child who would respond. And uh, we have a tendency to think, uh, lots of stuff about Jesus, but I think you'll find that he spent more time with people that we couldn't even imagine having dinner with. And you kind of know that in your head, so we're going to get there in six to eight years. Um, and, uh, but that's where we're going next week. I'm pretty excited because uh, Pastor Zach Wilkie will be preaching, and I will be grading him on that. And uh, he'll be sharing. He's, uh, as some of you know, uh, we have had a wealth, and Zach's my son, for those of you who don't know, but we have, we have had a wealth of, of young men and women in the past few years that God has called into full-time ministry. And as you know, one of them is a, 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 our, one of our missionaries, uh, Josh Ferguson, and we support him. And, and uh, Zach has graduated from Moody Bible Institute this last year and is going in August, to, moving to Fort Worth, where one of our seminaries will take him uh, to the next level, where he will learn, get, earn his uh, Master of Divinity, and uh, the Lord will continue to work in his life. So it is our privilege to pour into young men and women, whether they're my kids or not, and uh, we will continue to see. We have a young man this summer, another pastor's kid who is serving with clear ministry, and God's working in his heart, and there's other young men and women desiring to be missionaries, and then there's even more who are going to serve him in, in a secular field. So that's, we'll continue to do that and give opportunities. So next week you'll want to be here for that. And uh, we will give you all a grading sheet because that's how you, we want you. When he opens the word, we don't want you to hear what God has to say. We want you to grade him based upon his skill set. So was that the wrong introduction, Zach? 
I'm just teasing with y'all. Anyway, we we find ourselves this morning somewhere between 7 and 15 years into David's desert cave wandering or running. Uh, We don't know how long he was doing this, but we know it's a long period of time. Um, He's hiding out because he's trying to keep from being killed by King Saul and his army. How did he get in this situation? For those of you who haven't been with us, when he was a little boy tending the goat and the sheep of the family, he was called to the fireside by Samuel and his daddy, where he was anointed. Oil was poured over his head, having no clue what it meant, and he was told some crazy thing about Saul being removed from the throne and him being the next king. What does he do right after? He goes right back out to tend the flock. Uh, eventually, Saul asks him to come serve in his court. They call him in, and he he, uh, he serves in his court, and, and what happens from there is uh, one thing leads to another, and he ends up being sent out to war. Saul's trying to kill him. Saul becomes jealous. People start hailing David as a great man, and Saul becomes jealous, and especially after the Goliath thing. And, and so Saul sends him out, and he starts defeating in battle David left and right. And the people start, remember, the ladies start singing psalms, uh, songs about David. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and he becomes jealous, and at that point, he starts to take all of the tools of his resources of king to, to, to try to kill David. And as you can imagine, David had nothing to do with that. He's just running for his life. During his time of wondering, however long it is, God keeps reinforcing to David that his hand is upon his life. You will remember that Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, tells him that. We know you're going to be the next king. God's, God's got you in his protection. Remember us, our family, when you become king. And then you remember Abigail, who tells David that he's going to become the next king. And you'll remember that even Saul, on, a, on multiple occasions, reminds David, we, I know you're going to be the next king. Truly, that's the way it is. Remember my family. I mean, over and over, God reiterates, which is a gift. God's, God's, uh, God does not protect David from a difficult life, but he does reinforce his providence over him. God doesn't protect him. I want to say that again. God does not protect David from pain. He does not protect him from the grind of the wilderness. He does not protect him from what the, the, the translators often call strongholds. We know them as caves. He's living in caves. And one of those caves stunk because the king actually pooped in that cave. I mean, I know that seems crazy, but you've got to understand that when you feel like your life is getting worse and discouraging and why would God do that to me? What have I done wrong? You've got to think about King David. That's what I'm saying about these stories. These stories are true life stories and they reflect, they, um, man, if, if you are a mom of a three-year-old or a two-year-old or a baby, you know what it's like to have your cave pooped on. You know what that's like, and some days you go, I, I miss teaching Sunday school, and I miss being active for the kingdom, and I remember, I, I miss going to Brazil on a mission trip and how God used me there, and Satan whispers in your ear that you're, that you're just not being used, and this is the grind of life. That is discipleship. Our feelings, though, lie to us. It, they lie to us, and now culture is adding in as if, as if yes, women uh, raising kids is nice, but it's not the most admirable thing you can do. That is such a lie from hell. We need godly parents, and we need godly mothers to be mothers, and we need godly men to be, men, to be godly fathers. We need that so bad. The solution to the problems in America are not found by more money for people that are poor or, or more assistance. It is found in God, men and women giving their heart to God. And listen, for... I know that a lot of you are politically right. A lot of us are, are, are been that way. But if you will talk to believers on the left side of the aisle, they will say the same thing. We need, 
We need a, a revival, a spiritual revival in the homes of Christians where men, godly men, lead their children and godly women raise their children as well. And that's what we need. That will transform us. As we've studied this together, uh, especially in, in last week's text, we saw as, as, as David has this amazing moment, this amazing moment where <clears throat> he has the second opportunity to kill Saul. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has a second opportunity to kill Saul. This time is even more crazy than the first one. Saul is asleep, and, and his, his guards are all, all around him, and they've fallen asleep, which is against the rules. And David and one of his greatest warriors sneak into that circle, and they whisper over him. David's, David's military guy is going, just, just tell me, I'll run him through. Nobody will ever know, we'll kill him. And the truth is that he could have solved all of Israel's, or the Hebrews, and his own problem just by killing him, just by letting his guy kill him. Nobody would have known, and I believe, it's my opinion, that the whole nation, all of the Hebrews would have celebrated him. How do I know that? Because Saul will eventually die, and everybody, even the enemies of David, celebrate him. It says that God put Saul's men into a deep sleep. But instead of killing him, as David and, and the, uh, his, his, his military guy are leaning over Saul's sleeping body, David says this in 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, Who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he'll die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed, but take his spear and that jug of water beside his head, and then let's get out of here. And I, I want to, again, reiterate that if David would have just done what I am sure he wanted to do and kill Saul, it would have solved so many of his human problems, and I, I really don't know that he would have had any human response, but David was more committed to God than even the opinions of his military. I was thinking this week as I was studying, what was it like that night when, when David and this it goes back to his cave, and he goes to sleep over in the corner, and he's listening around the fire as his men are talking about the fact that once again David wouldn't kill Saul. You guys know exactly what these guys are thinking. What is wrong with that man? He seems so brave, brave and courageous. Why wouldn't he kill him? I'm sure that in the deep places of that cave that night, there was lots of questions, and I'm sure David knew that they were being asked, but David was so committed, so sure that God would take care of Saul that he didn't want to do it himself. He refused to. As we go into chapter 27, I'm convinced that David was sure that God could take care of Saul, but I'm not sure he's convinced that God will take care of him. One more time before we go there. 1 Samuel 26. Listen to Saul's response when David yells from the hillside, I didn't kill you and I could have. Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you. For you have valued my life today. I have been a fool and very, very wrong. Here is your spear, O king, David replied. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord gives his own reward for doing good and being loyal. And I refuse to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power. For you are the Lord's anointed one. Now may the Lord value my life even as I have valued yours today. May he rescue me from all my troubles. And Saul said to David, Blessings on you, my son David. You will do many heroic deeds, and you will surely succeed. Then David went away, and Saul returned home. What an incredible moment this was. 
David had done the right thing, and his guy, he's probably high-fiving, feeling good. The rush of adrenaline is over. It's a spiritual high point until the very next verse. Chapter 27, verse 1. But David kept, stop for a second, take a breath. The word kept means he was already thinking it. David kept thinking to himself, someday Saul is going to get me. How weird is that? We've been talking about how, how trusting David is, and there's no doubt that he trusted the Lord, but even despite over and over being told he'd be the next king, he's not sure that he's going to survive this. While we have hailed David's courage, amazed by his decisions to act on his trust in God, we find that underneath this courageous exterior is lingering doubt and discouragement. Listen to the depths of his inner, fe inner feelings uh, from a psalm, Psalm 13, that was written while David was in the caves. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? This is what's awesome about the Psalms. The Psalms takes us beyond the stories into the heart of this man. This book, and I mean the whole thing, isn't a book, a book about 15 steps to becoming courageous or faithful. Too often, when we mount the pulpit, we try to teach you three steps to becoming great. That's exactly the problem. You'll never become great in your own power. I will never become great in my own power. This is a story and a series of stories about a faithful God who continually loves on, protects, takes care of his children, even when they don't trust him, and even when they're weak, tired, sad, and even sinful towards him. After choosing not to kill Saul, David is convinced in his heart that Saul will eventually win this war. He will eventually kill David. So David decides to do what he sees as his only option, 1 Samuel 27, the second half of that first verse. The best thing I can do is escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I'll finally be safe. What do we learn from that? David wanted to be safe, just like you and me. He had the same feelings that we have. He was tired of being chased all over the place. He was tired of it. And even though he did the honorable thing and trusting thing by not killing Saul, he did not take things into his own hand. Even despite doing that, inside he still thinks he's going to die, and he still does whatever it takes to save his life. <clears throat> After choosing not to end his enemy's life and fix the problem, but rather trust in God to remove Saul in his own time, David, in a moment of what I see as deep discouragement, decides to go move in with the Philistines. Now, I don't want you to forget how this story works because you don't want to forget how it started. David becomes famous because of his battle with Goliath, remember? Where's Goliath from? Philistines, but what city? Gath, keep that in mind. That's where he's about to move. Remember what Abigail said to David, 1 Samuel 25, 29? Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. Remember we talked about that last week? Remember how I read all those verses about God's promises to you and about an hour into lunch, you forgot all of those? So did David. 27, verse 2. So David took his 600 men and went over and joined Achish, son of Maach, the king of Gath, 
Does anybody remember what he's wearing as he goes on these journeys? Goliath's sword. You still with me? How do I know he's still carrying Goliath's sword? Because when he finally becomes king and goes to Jerusalem, he takes the armor and he mounts it in the, king, in the, in the, in the capital city as a sign of God's faithfulness. He's still carrying Goliath's sword, and he goes into Gath. And do you think they would have recognized Goliath's sword? This isn't that far away. This is not, this, this is not even a generation later. David was a little boy when he fought Goliath, but that sword would have been famous. Famous. That's very good. Goliath. Now I'm with <laughs> Sorry. It's crazy that I get to do this every Sunday. He moves to Gath. Verse 3, David and his men and their family settled there uh, with Achish at Gath. David brought his two wives along them. One was from Jezreel and Abigail, Nabal's widow, widow from Carmel. Word soon reached Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. Let the record show that David was right, that Saul would not chase him into Philistine territory. One day, David said to Achish, if it's all right with you, we would rather live in one of the country towns instead of here in the royal city. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag, which still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. And they lived there among the Philistines for a year and four months. David and his men spent their time raiding uh, the Geshurites, the Jerzites, and the Amalekites, people who had lived near Shur toward the end of Egypt, toward the land of Egypt, since ancient times. So just so you know who these people are, these are the enemies of the Hebrew people that God had told the Jews already to defeat at this time and take that land. That land was part of the promised land, but it was being inhabited by Gentiles. And so David is, is raiding these towns while living among Achash, not only in Gath. Not only, though, are these the enemies of the Jews, but they are the friends of the Philistines. These are the Philistines' warrior friends. Verse 9, David did not lead one person alive in the villages he attacked. He took the sheep, goats, cattle, donkeys, camels, and clothing before returning home to, seeing, to see King Achish. Where'd you take your, make your raid today, Achish would ask. And David would reply, against the south of Judah, the Jimrelites, and the Kenites. No one was left alive to come to Gath and tell where he had really been. This happened again and again while he was living among the Philistines. Just so you know, David lied to the king of Gath. He lied to him. And why did he lie to him? Because while the king thinks he's attacking Hebrews, the people that he mentioned tells him he's attacking are Jews. While he lies to him and said he's attacking the Hebrews, who are the enemy of the Philistines, so that they'll let him continue to live in the land, he's actually attacking Philistines. And by the way, he kills every woman, child, and man in those towns, everyone. And why? Because he doesn't want them going back and telling the truth. So anybody who sees it who is not in David's warrior party is killed. Verse 12, Achish believed David and thought to himself, by now the people of Israel must hate him bitterly. Now he will have to stay here and serve me forever. This is a mess. This is a mess. And although he is dispensing of enemies of the Hebrews, he's lying to King Achish and living among pagan people, killing them with Goliath's sword. This, uh, this is only going to be for about eight of you in this room. But this scene reminds me of when Luke Skywalker looks down at his hand after it was cut off and he sees Darth Vader's fist. Remember that? That's the old movies, the good ones. 
And he looks down, and he, uh, because that's what's happening here. In case you're not clear, Achish is excited that this man who dispensed of Goliath is now the new Goliath. He's got Goliath's sword. He's in Goliath's town. He's serving Goliath's king. And he, the king thinks he's fighting Goliath's enemy. You see it? David is playing both sides of the fence. Now, some of you are going, he shouldn't have done that. This was sin. I don't know if he should have done it or not. That's what's great about our God. It never once says, you shouldn't have done that, David. You lack trust. I think we could make the argument that he should have gone in the Hebrew territory, but, but to be truthful with you, God doesn't say that. And I want to remind you that when you're discouraged and panicky and sometimes freaking out, God still loves you. Too often in churches... We think God is grading us every moment of every day with his big old scorecard, and you better not screw up. In fact, a lot of times in churches, we preach grace to those that are unsaved, but less grace for those that are saved. And I want you to know that 1 John 1, 9 says that he has already forgiven your sin and cleansed you from all unrighteousness if you have confessed your sin. That means that the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow and the day after that, that sin has already been forgiven. Now look, it will cause devastation to your life. There's no doubt about it. If you commit adultery, it's forgiven if you are God's child, but it will destroy your family, your reputation, your ministry. It's not advisable. But I want to make clear here that as, as we, we think of everything in terms of black and white, in terms of right and wrong, in terms of winning and losing, the truth is this is a series of events that happen because David is scared. David's discouraged. This is not a series of events where David becomes evil at this point. David, and I... Uh, we're going to make this case as we go into 2 Samuel. But I'd like to argue with you right off the top that when David was a little boy taking on Goliath, he was too stupid to know all that he had to lose in that battle. But as you get older, a lot of us get more scared. We get more nervous. There's a greater cost. We have more responsibility. At that time, David had no following. Now he has 600 men plus women and children that he has to take care of. There's a lot of responsibility there. It isn't just his own life. It's the lives of all of those that have chosen to follow him and defend him. And that's a lot of pressure. I'm not making an excuse for not trusting the Lord. I'm just saying that when you go crazy and lose your head over your children or your job or your culture, I want you to know that God even measures that into account. God is so gracious. He's so much more forgiving than you even, than you even have any idea, than we have any idea of. His love for us and his mercy overwhelms even our understanding. And to make the case, I want, you to, I want you to realize that David isn't the only hero of the faith that gets scared and discouraged. I'd like to show you some words that most of you aren't even aware are in the scripture from Moses from Numbers chapter 11. Look what, look what Moses said to God. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. Look at this. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do a favor and spare me this misery. And the Jews are still looking for the next Moses. That's Moses. Why is he discouraged? Because of God's task, his responsibility. Or how about the greatest prophet of all time, Elijah? Three years of drought have caused, uh, has caused uh, by unfaithfulness of the Hebrew people. And, and this has drained the land of vitality. It is a desert. As is usual with God, he sends a prophet, and this time it's Elijah. He's going to fight for the hearts of the people that he loves. On the way to proclaim to the people that God wants them back. 
Elijah meets Obadiah, a court official who has remained faithful to the Lord. And, and Obadiah arranges a meeting with the Hebrew king Ahab, who, who he challenges to a duel of God. I know you know the story, but I'm going to read it because I want you to understand what happens after the story. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and he said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people's response, they were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on, a wo on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose you one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on an altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime. Pay attention, this is really important. They shouted, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. Uh, the inference in Hebrew is they cut themselves. They flogged each other. They bled themselves to try to get the attention of Baal. Verse 27, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he's a god. Maybe he's daydreaming or relieving himself. In case, in case you aren't catching this, there's a lot of discussion of going to the bathroom in the scriptures. It's not what we teach kids. Actually, maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Scream louder. So they shouted louder. <laughs> They're following Elijah's lead. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of evening sacrifice. But there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. So in case you're not paying attention, the first God that answers wins, and he hadn't even started yet. He gives them, what, nine hours for them to call the fire down from Baal, and nothing happens. So he begins rebuilding the altar that they have no longer been using. That's the inference here. Verse 31, he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, 32, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid uh, the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and on the wood. You know what he's doing, right? He's dousing it so it won't light. After he had done this, he said, do the same again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. At the usual time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately. In case you're not clear on what the Hebrew word for immediately means, 
at that second. The fire from the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stone, the dust, and even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell their face down to the ground and cried, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. What a day. Wouldn't you just love to see something like that once in your life? I mean, I know we've seen some amazing things, but just to see the fire from God like that. But as always the case, that really isn't the end of the story, although usually at that point we give an altar call and say, do you want that God on your side? That's really not the end of the story. It continues, verse 1 of chapter 19. When Ahab got home, inference the same day, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. That was a pretty safe call of God because that God wouldn't even show up for a fire. But she does promise to kill him. Listen to Elijah's response, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Okay, let that soak in. He just called fire down from heaven that drinks water and eats dust. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. Sounds like Moses, doesn't it? I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. Discouragement, fear, even depression. This is a description of depression. After seeing fire from heaven, after these amazing moments of their lives, after these incredible, remember that Moses watched God send 10 plagues. Everything God had promised was given. Every time they needed water, God provided. Every time they needed food, it fell out of the sky. Every time they needed something, God provided. And yet these three amazing heroes of the faith still struggled with discouragement, fear, and depression because those things are real. They struggled with those things. Apparently, even for the most powerfully called, those who have seen God's supernatural power, discouragement and depression happen. You may remember this from a song we sang when we were way younger. Most of us are my age. Psalm 42, 1 through 5. As the deer longs for strings of water, so I long for you, O God. Remember the song? As the deer. We, we sang it in youth group. I took kids on retreats, and we always sang that song. It's a great song, right? Listen to the verses. As the deer longs for strings of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can, when can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only tears for food. While my enemies continually haunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking, as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amidst the sound of celebration. But why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Wait a minute, I, I thought that was, a, that was a great song of God's provision. It is, but knowing something here and feeling it here are two dramatically different things. In a culture and time that worships how we feel, and even to the point where it's, it, it's, it's made its way into evaluating services, 
<clears throat> and for those of you who think I'm talking about Pentecostalism, I'm talking about people who visit our church and say, I'm looking for a church that will make me feel guilty at the end. If I don't leave feeling beat up by the Holy Spirit, dear brother, I haven't been to worship. Who says you have to be beat up by God? It, doesn't, it may make you feel something, but feeling something does not make it true, whether it's an exuberant worship experience or it's con this deep conviction. The fact is that we are addicted to how we feel. That's why we do drugs and have sex outside of marriage and leave our spouses when they don't treat us well and why we badmouth them on the internet on our way out. Because we are living for our flesh, not for our king. When we take the cross and apply it to us, what was it Warren Wearsby said? I just, I just read this this week. We often try to look at our lives. Let's see, what is it? I'm going to mess this up. I didn't write it down. I should have. We have a tendency to try to get God to understand how, what our life experience is through our eyes when we should be looking at life through God's eyes. I know I killed it, but you know what I'm trying to say. We have a tendency to pray. Think about how you pray. God, I'm feeling bad. God, I don't like this. God, I need more money. God, my kids are driving me crazy. God, my husband's an idiot. God, my wife is a loudmouth. God, whatever, fill in the blank. My pastor, rabbit trails, whatever. We have a tendency to pray that God will understand our feelings and act based upon what we want him to do instead of asking God to help us see our experiences through his eyes. And that is the problem with a lot of us in the church today. That's why we're so politically active, because we're trying to move our country to do things in a way that make us feel safe, not in a way that honors the Lord. We have put our hope, like David, in moving in with the Philistines. It makes us feel safe. And for a year and four months, it may work, but, but the truth is, it doesn't make us close to God. But you know what's amazing about our God? He doesn't leave David or Moses or Elijah sitting under that broom tree. In 1 Kings 19, verse 5, this is what God does. An angel touched him and he told him, get up and eat. And he looked around and there beside his head were some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Pause. Does this not sound like a week after Peter had denied Christ three times? After the resurrection... Jesus makes breakfast for them. And not once at the, at the breakfast table does he go, you really screwed that up. You better repent. You better knock it off. He doesn't do that. God doesn't do that to them. He loves them. He died on the cross so they could deny him. He had already paid the price. Now the question was, is Peter, do you love me? It's not, boy, you're proven you don't love me. It's, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Get back to work. Don't stop. Don't stop and linger in your sin. Live for your task. I would like to argue with you that I think the church has a tendency to get you to linger in your sin. I'm here to tell you this morning that if you've committed adultery, if you've whatever, fill in the blank, if you're a gossip, if you're whatever, God is not lingering there if you're his child. He wants you to get back in the game. I remember at communion times as a kid, we would sit on Sunday morning and Pastor Jeremiah would get up there and he would tell us that if, you're, if, if you have a thing against a brother and you haven't, it's not right, make sure you go make that right before you take communion. I want to say, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Thank God for grace and get back in the game. But I'm on my sixth marriage. God could count higher than six. Don't worry about it. Get back in the game. Walk with God. 
I don't like how it feels. Nobody likes how it feels. But when we're done with this life, we'll feel better than we could ever possibly imagine. That's where our joy will be and our peace and our hope. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and thief and rust cannot destroy. But we're down here going, maybe I can do both. And I'm here to tell you, apparently from Scripture, that's not possible. Even when fire rays down from heaven. And this is an incredible text because when Elijah is feeling sorry for himself and the angel comes down and feeds him, God doesn't go, get up, you lazy so-and-so. You're feeling sorry for yourself. He actually feeds him. And, and even after he does that, it says that he ate and he drank. And what does he do? He lays down again. This dude is in a full-blown five-alarm depression. And the angel of the Lord came again and he touched him and he said, get up, eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. In other words, I know you're having a hard time. I know you're depressed. I know that Ahab and Jezebel want to kill you, but you're still going to walk this journey, no matter how you feel. So get up and eat some more. God takes care of him. So he got up and he ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's called pouting. We all do it. Ladies, remember when your husband came home and the kids had been pooping and pouting and throwing up all day, and he goes, is dinner ready? That's what that was like. Or maybe, men, you've been working all day and you come home and the, woman, the wife hands you the baby and you're like, what do you want me to do with this? The news is on. I know I just stereotype marriage, get over it. You can put it to your own context. The, the truth is, we all want what we want, amen? We all want the church we want. You got the preacher you wanted, but the music, you know, I mean, it's just, just kidding. I mean, we all, we all want what we want. Every one of us, I want what I want, you want what you want. And and that's why Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to pick up your cross, put your selfish ambition or desires aside, and follow me. You see, that's the thing that's so dangerous today. We've got church telling you, you can have, your, you can have, uh, you can have God and everything you want, and I'm here to tell you, you cannot. You can't have it all. You see, part of getting saved is repentance. It's turning away and understanding that God is better. If you declare Jesus as Lord, and you turn and you follow him, I'm not saying you're saved by works, but if you truly believe that God is God and he's the only one that can fix it, you'll follow him. Even when you cry out to him going, what's going on? And you're gonna go, we're gonna go through seasons of discouragement. Man, you got, you got Moses saying, kill me. You've got Elijah saying, kill me. You've got David going, I'm gonna die anyway. And then you have the New Testament where Paul says it's better to die than to keep living. I mean, this is a difficult task. I'm sorry that you were sold that it makes life better. In some ways, it makes life worse. Actually, life is hard with or without God. You might as well go with him. I mean, what are you living for if you don't live for God? Your flesh, how's that working for you? If you're on the internet this morning and you don't know, uh, I mean, my question for you is, how's it working without God? Well, it's just as hard with God, but at least we know in whom we can trust. And then we go home. Remember, home where no eye is seen and no ear is heard, what waits though for those who earnestly seek him. You see, YOLO is a lie from hell. 
you don't live once as a child of God. You live twice. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, we live for life then. We don't live for life now. And I think another one of the worst lies of the church is that heaven is a place you sit in this big sanctuary with gold and all this stuff, and it's boring. If we get to heaven, and it's like that, I promise you I will raise my hand and ask if we made it. Heaven is home. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He didn't say, I'm going to prepare a place for me that you get to hang out. He said, I'm preparing a place for you. You are the subject of that sentence. And when I prepare this place for you, it's going to feel like home to you. Why is he preparing a place for us? Because this is hard. This is life. This is the battlefield. This is where we are aliens and strangers. This is where we have one thing we value more than political correctness and morality. We value God. And we're so convinced of it, we want as many people to go with us as possible. But we get discouraged and depressed and overwhelmed. Kids are hard to raise, except for my two who are, who are perfect. AJ knows my kids. You know, they would say that it's hard to live with their dad. We're kind of a messy group, aren't we? And if everybody else would just do their thing, life would be easier. No, it wouldn't. You'll get cancer. Why would God give me cancer? Because he wants you to minister to a doctor who only does cancer. You see, God is moving the chess pieces around that are called Mark and you, and we're, we're being moved around for the king's purposes. I'm the only one left, Elijah said, and now they're trying to kill me too. Verse 11, the Lord says to him, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. What? We would have thought he was in the wind. We would have started worshiping, but he wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. You see, we all want him in the fire and the wind and the earthquake. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't want the fire and the wind and the earthquake when we're discouraged. But he comes in a whisper. Our God not only sent his son to save us, but he never stops chasing us even after we're saved. And I have no doubt that you felt what David was feeling in 1 Samuel 27 or Psalm 13 or Psalm 42 or Elijah from 1 Kings 18 and 19. Or maybe you're feeling it now. Maybe right now you're just discouraged. You're, try, you're, you're, you're walking with God, but the money doesn't stretch far enough, and your spouse is just a bigger jerk than you thought, and you're just, just uh, or the weather's hotter, and now the air conditioning broke down. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Or maybe you don't even know why you're depressed, but you just are. And you're asking God to remove your depression, and he doesn't. Well, he sent me to tell you that he's faithful. And I need you to tell me sometime. He sent me to tell you he's faithful. Every one of you, as I look out there, I know most of you. And if I were to take the time, it would embarrass some of you, but I could go through the pain in your family and the things that scare you the most because you've shared them with me. You've asked me to pray. I get it. I got things that scare me too. Lots of stuff scares me. But the truth is, even in the fear, even in the feeling, God is faithful. Do you still believe that? 
you trusted him with your soul, maybe we should try trusting him with our life. It doesn't mean the depression goes away, though, right away. I want to be clear. That's a real feeling. Discouragement is a real feeling. Being tired of not feeling good, it's a real feeling. Wishing you had a different experience is a real feeling. It's also why your body will be left behind one day. Because it's a lie. You see, our hope and our value and our significance and our all of that stuff that we're looking for, it's not found in how we feel or this life. It's found in God. You want to hear one more? Actually, I'm going to share it with you whether you want to hear it or not. Psalm 42. Listen to, listen to this psalm. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I'll put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Let me, let me tell you how I read that, and it's just me. But I actually think he's talking to his discouragement. I don't think he's feeling it. He's saying, I will put my hope in God. Okay, I'm, I'm going to put my hope in God even if I don't feel it. Now, I am deeply discouraged. That's why I believe that. Because he says it in the verse, but I will remember you. Even from distant Mount Hermon, the sources of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Mizar, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and your surging tides sweep over me. But each day, the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me. And through each night, I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. Oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones. They scoff. Where is that God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Oh, how we long for God to show up in powerful storms of fire and wind, don't we? We want him to be in the earthquakes. Because we want other people, and I dare say it in some cases, and this is me, I don't really care about their souls often as much as I care about them saying I was right all along. Please tell me I'm not the only one who's selfish like that. Yeah, if they get saved, that's great too. But it sure would be nice to hear one of the pundits on television who mock us go, wow, I guess God's real. You know what's wrong with that? It's my flesh. It's my flesh. This isn't about winning. This is about being declared victorious through Christ. We are winners because of what Jesus did. No matter what our experience is, no matter what happens in November, no matter who the president is, no matter what color your skin is, no matter how bad your spouse is, no matter how small your checkbook is, you win because of Jesus. Oh, to believe that. Oh, to believe that. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. Always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble to the seas. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city, and it cannot be destroyed. That's our future. 
From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's army is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Come, see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes war to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still, he says, and know that I'm God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. Are you tired, mom? Go ahead and eat. Take a nap. Get back to work. Husband, are you tired of all that's going on? Eat some brisket and a deep fried roll. Maybe it will hasten your eternal home. <laughs> Keep walking. What am I supposed to do? Keep walking. Even if you year, live for a year and four months in the, in the camp of the Philistines, God's going to take care of Saul and put him on the throne. That was his promise. And God's got a task for you and I, and we will fulfill that task. And when that task is done, we will go home. And it will be a great go-home going. Some of you have lost spouses recently or kids. And every day your heart breaks. I want you to know that God wasn't sleeping when he took them. He just doesn't done working through you yet. You will go home at just the right time. Me too. It's going to be fine. We just have to keep eating and breathing and walking. And it'll be just fine. Because the one who has wrote the end of the book, he's not just the alpha, he's the omega. He's your dad. Oh God, help us believe what we see. And help us not make decisions based upon our feelings, but based upon what is true what is taught us from your scriptures, what the Holy Spirit confirms in our heart. Keep us walking until you take us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you're visiting with us, I'd love to shake your hand. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday.